This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's ask the Lord to guide and direct our thinking as we study his word. Father, thank you for your word, for the light that it sheds upon our path, and for God the Holy Spirit who enlightens us internally to the meaning and understanding of your word, that we may be able to retain it, that he is the one who works within us to bring it back to our conscious memory, that we may apply these principles in the midst of our lives, enduring often uh, times of pressure, times of uh, adversity, times of difficulty, that we may consciously be aware moment by moment that we are living a life that is to reflect your character, your grace, your love, and that the details of our lives are not significant uh, at all. It is how we respond to them and how we magnify your grace and love in our lives. We pray that as we study your word today that we might be further challenged in our understanding of of the dynamics of, of wisdom and skillful living as laid out in the book of Proverbs. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The last few days, a couple of different unrelated events uh, went through my life, conversations that I thought were interesting, gave me a little time to pause and reflect upon a couple of things related to uh, the church, why we do things the way we do at West Houston Bible Church, because uh, we're not like a lot of other churches that are uh, around today, not that I'm being negative to them, but just to explain why we emphasize the things we emphasize here. We emphasize the study of the Word because we believe that that is the biblical priority, is to know uh, to know the Word, to understand what the Word says. And in the process of studying the Word and the, the discipline that we must have, the rigorous academic discipline we must have in order to understand accurately what God has revealed to us and then put it into his lives, is not something that uh, should, be a, should be distracted by a lot of subjective emotion. There's nothing wrong with emotion. God gave us emotion, and emotion is a wonderful thing, but emotion is also a great distraction, as can be intellectual activity. Anything in life can be a distraction to the Word, but we need to focus upon what the Word says and truly understand it, and that involves intellectual activity. Often in Christianity, there's this pseudo-division made between a heart faith and a head faith. But a head faith is a faith that is based upon an understanding of the truth and the content of the truth. And in that little um, saying that is common, 
uh, which isn't true or biblical at all. Heart is supposed to relate to some sort of emotion, and that if you really don't have this emotional connection, then you really don't have a, 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 a true biblical view uh, of truth. And that's just not the issue at all because what happens is emotion gets in the way and emotion becomes a great distraction, either at the front end because we are defining spirituality by uh, our emotional framework or afterward because as we've heard the truth and it has generated a legitimate emotional response, and that's not true every time we hear something. There's sometimes the truth of God's word hits us uh, in a fresh way and generates uh, different kinds of emotional responses depending on the, the principle involved. But the next time we hear it, we may not have that kind of emotional response at all, and the distraction is that we think, oh, I need to somehow have that emotional uh, connection or I really didn't understand it, and we substitute the the emotion becomes a criteria for the legitimacy of uh, what we've just encountered. Having said that, I wanted to connect these two things I mentioned earlier. One was a conversation I had over the past few days with a uh, good friend of mine uh, down in the valley who was a lawyer, and um, he was. we were talking about legal things, and he related an um, anecdote about a conference that he had attended. And lawyers have to have so many hours of continuing education, professional education every year, and at one particular seminar, uh, the, uh, the, the person giving the lecture was a very extremely well-known, uh, litigator from the Houston area. Uh, I don't remember his name, but he was the, uh, lawyer who was, um, uh, responsible for bringing all of those successful lawsuits back in the 90s against, uh, various, uh, companies who produced the, uh, uh, breast implants, the silicone breast implants claiming all sorts of, making all sorts of claims about the fact that they contributed to uh, some sort of damage to the immune system. And there was no evidence for that, but there was a lot of emotion involved. And uh, the basic idea of this guy's presentation was that when you're giving your closing argument to the jury, uh, it's not about facts. It's not about truth. You got to make them sad and you got to make them mad. And then you win. It's all about emotion. And see, that comes across in many areas of, and I'll use the term rhetoric, because under that term we have various uh, views and philosophies of homiletics and preaching and sermonizing, and where that is something that comes across is you've got to make people feel the doctrine. And then the other night I was watching a television show, uh, one I've uh, just seen a few episodes in. It's called Bones. Some of you may have watched it. It's about a uh, female anthropologist, forensic anthropologist, who works for something like the Smithsonian Institute. And what makes her so great at her job is she's extremely dispassionate, uh, rational. Uh, the evidence has to control everything. Uh, in her uh, approach to studying a crime scene or something, you can't let emotion or anything else enter in. And she's going to, she is going to uh, uh, testify in a court case. And so there's a conflict between her and the 
a jury consultant who wants her to be dynamic and emotional and connect emotionally with the with the uh, jury and and all of this you know the make him sad make him mad principle and she's just not that way she uses a lot of technical scientific jargon to explain all of the things that are going on in the body she doesn't connect well to the jury that's the whole story and then in the midst of the development of the of the show uh, they sort uh, the the prosecutor i think asks her a question to try to bring out some emotion and ask ask her why she does what she does and in the midst of an of her answer she looks at the jury and she explains that the reason she doesn't get involved emotionally is because it's not about her it's not about her emotions it's not about their emotions it's about the victim and finding justice for the victim and emotion, whether on the part of the jury or on the part of the, uh, the, the crime analyst, just gets in the way. And I thought, boy, that is a great principle for understanding what should be taking place in the pulpit. Not that the teaching of the Word should just present a lot of dry facts. That's not what I'm saying. But it's not about my emotion. I've seen pastors who get all worked up and weep and cry, and they, in any given sermon, they run the emotional gamut from one end to the other, and they try to get the congregation to do that as well. I've heard others that are, uh, it would be more fun to watch paint dry. <laughs> they just don't know how to package their content to keep people awake and um, are presented that way. And somewhere in the middle is where things should be. We shouldn't, uh, pastors, rhetoricians, orators should not be focusing on the make them mad, make them sad principle because that is devoid, usually devoid of content and often runs contrary to evidence and runs contrary to content. In many cases, uh, it, it runs contrary to, uh, it just shows that the person speaking has no content. The less you know, the more you should emote. Get everybody worked up. They'll say you did a great job because you made them feel good or generated emotion or, or, or whatever. So our focus here is on the teaching of the Word. It's not on trying to generate emotion. Emotion should be generated as a result of God the Holy Spirit driving the truth home in our own lives. It may happen when we're listening here. It may happen later when we're reflecting upon it. Uh, whether or not there is an emotional response is not necessary. Uh, if to have, an, or excuse me, to say it another way, to have an emotional response is not necessarily the criteria of whether or not we've learned something or applied it. Uh, having great emotion is not wrong either. It depends on whether it's driven by the content of God's Word. But if we are going to live skillful lives, which is what Proverbs is all about, then we have to develop that kind of objectivity about our own lives so that we can evaluate our lives, our thinking, our responses to circumstances and situations, uh, evaluating the decisions that we make in the light of the objective principles of God's Word. And while emotion, as I said, is not wrong, it can easily distract us. And this is a problem that many Christians have. This is a problem, I think, that our culture has right now. 
and especially Christian culture, is a loss of the place and the proper role of emotion within within the Christian life. And as we look at these opening verses in Proverbs chapter 1, there is an emphasis on intellectual activity, not emotional activity. We have to learn how to properly think and how to properly study and to properly learn. Proverbs is a book about wisdom, which means to live skillfully, to be able to live life well. Now, I don't mean that in a health sense, but in terms of the decisions that we make. And so that we can, at the end of uh, decades of life, look back and say that we lived well. We did not live in the midst of a lot of self-induced calamity or self-induced misery, but we may have gone through calamity and misery and adversity, but it wasn't because we were making wrong decisions or foolish decisions. And because we live on the basis of biblical wisdom, even in the midst of adversity, we can live well with joy and happiness and stability. So Proverbs gives us these nutshell principles throughout the book on how to live well, skillful living. So I pointed out last time, the title comes from the opening verse, the Proverbs of Solomon. A proverb is a distillation of truth into two, three, four, five lines. Often it uses different kinds of parallelism, which I'll review again in just a minute. I pointed out last time in terms of the outline that the first nine chapters or so are uh, an integral whole. So we will study through those first nine chapters. There's a solid context there and a thematic flow through those first nine chapters. But then beginning in chapter 10, verse 1 through 2216, we go through 375 Proverbs, most of these are either two-line proverbs called the die-stitch or sometimes a three-line, a tri-stitch, or you get a few others that, that uh, make it a little longer. But these are basically just individual sayings. And so when we get to that point, what I'll do is probably look at 10 or 15 different topics that are covered throughout uh, the book of Proverbs in a significant way and just uh, sort of address those topically to go, go through uh, Solomon's Proverbs, as well as with the uh, next section, the third section, the 30 sayings of the wise and the two, from 22.17 to 24.22, the further sayings of the wise at the end of chapter 24. Then we have another section of Proverbs from Solomon with a 137 Proverbs from 25.1 to 29.27. And then a couple of other authors that we saw last time that's not all written by Solomon, uh, the sayings of Agur and the sayings of, of Lemuel. So there are several authors, as I pointed out last time, Solomon. David is never attributed as an author, but these are the, uh, many of these are proverbs that were, and wise sayings that were taught by Solomon's father to him when he was a young man, and his father, of course, was David. So I include him as a background source or author. Now, whenever we study scripture, whenever we study a doctrine, I try on a case, I try frequently to point out what the human viewpoint challenge 
to the doctrine is. So because you're going to run into it. Now, if you're older, you may run into it less than if you're younger. But just because you're older and you're not going to be in a college classroom or an academic lecture of some sort where the Word of God is being attacked doesn't get you off because you have children and grandchildren that you can answer questions for, and so you need to understand that so you can have an impact in their lives and and to help them. Also, you will watch shows on television where some of these ideas come out. I try to always go back to original source material on various human viewpoint ideas so we know uh, where it came from, who originated these ideas, things of that nature. But the average person that you talk to probably will say the same thing. It's just been filtered through about 10 different levels of instruction, and he never heard of whoever the originator was. But nevertheless, he's latched onto that idea and will use it in some way in a conversation, perhaps a witnessing conversation, just because he's asking the question, can I really trust the Bible? And so we have to understand some things in order to answer those kinds of questions quickly, briefly, and get things back on track. So we always find a human viewpoint challenge to truth, and there's a human viewpoint challenge to Proverbs as the uh, as the writings of Solomon and something uniquely a divine revelation and uniquely uh, the product of revelation through the Jewish people, through the Israelites. So let's just look at this uh, uh, summary of the human viewpoint claim. And we see something similar to this in other areas. The human viewpoint claim is that the Bible really, it doesn't really come from God. It is written by human beings, and it reflects more about their culture and the understanding of their time and those limitations rather than objective truth. So uh, the human viewpoint claim is that the Bible reflects and imitates previous writings. Uh, there were the writers of Scripture were influenced by Hammurabi in terms of uh, uh, the, his law code, uh, influenced by the in this case the uh, certain uh, wisdom sayings from Egypt. Uh, when it comes to the creation, uh, the creation narrative in Genesis one and two didn't originate with Moses. Uh, the Hebrews were influenced by uh, the Babylonian creation epic uh, Enuma Elish. Others would say, no, that's influenced by various uh, Egyptian creation myths and legends. But the reality is that if you assume the Bible to be true, the creation and the story of the creation in Genesis 1 through 3 occurred before there were any Babylonians or Egyptians or Israelites or Akkadians. And that story was known and passed down through the generations to Noah and even after Noah. And in human viewpoint cultures where there was the suppression of truth and righteousness and these creation stories got distorted and shifted, then what there, what we find in the Enuma Elish and these other cre- creation stories is just a distorted, pale reflection of the original true story of, of creation, which was uh, handed down through the uh, writings of the Old Testament. So the priority is the actual historical events by God, then the recording of that through the prophets of the Old Testament and the distortion of it by 
the human, uh, by the various human civilizations. But the human viewpoint is that the Bible is a reflection of these other legends, nothing original there. It's just the Hebrew creation myth. Now, the problem with this Hebrew, uh, human viewpoint claim is that it always puts human literature and experience prior to biblical revelation. And this is, tr- this is what the, the human mind always does. And rather than letting experience be governed and interpreted by revelation, we always want revelation to be governed by experience. And we see this in everything from mysticism to the charismatic movement and speaking in tongues and, and uh, evolution, all of these things put priority on human experience and interpretation of human experience, and then that governs the interpretation of the word. But the divine viewpoint answer is the Bible comes first and that all of these other things come second. Now, I want to show you, I'm going to give you a quote in a minute from a couple of authors whom I know, I've known personally for many years and who are excellent Bible scholars, very conservative, and on most things are just exceptional. And one of the reasons I'm quoting them is to show you that even the best of the best slip now and then, and because this pressure is on us always to not march to too much of a beat of a different drummer. And uh, even among some of the best Bible scholars, they slip on these things. And this is a, um, a quote from an introduction to the Old Testament by uh, Charles Dyer and uh, Eugene Merrill. And they give too much credibility to the human viewpoint claim on the authorship of Proverbs. Uh, the <clears throat> human viewpoint claim is that Solomon wrote Proverbs after an Egyptian book known as the Wisdom of Amenemope and that that he really reflects and he's influenced by wisdom literature from other cultures, but this has been distilled through centuries in a Hebrew culture and then is written down by, by Solomon. So other cultures have wisdom. What that does is that really minimizes and dilutes the power of the objective truth that's in the Word of God. And so I'm going to quote from uh, this book, uh, summary or survey of the Old Testament from Dyer. Charlie Dyer teaches up at Moody now. He's a classmate of mine at Dallas, excellent scholar, tremendous dispensationalist. And Eugene Merrill, who I think is the last surviving full-bore, seven-day, 24-hour-day creationist in the Old Testament faculty at Dallas Seminary. But everybody's got weaknesses, so we have to treat them in grace. But I'm using this as an illustration. They say in their introduction that most scholars have noted uh, this correlation or similarity between Proverbs and other ancient Near Eastern literature. They said most scholars have noted this, and many have gone beyond this observation to draw attention to similarities they perceive to exist between this composition, that is Proverbs, and an Egyptian wisdom text known as the Wisdom of Amenemope, written around 1200 B.C. Now, I think most of these dates, as you know, are uh, nothing past about 740 B.C. is absolutely certain. Always remember that because we don't have objective anchor points beyond that. I, that that date is related to a battle uh, and a... And a uh, uh, lunar eclipse, and we can nail that down, but beyond that, 
things may flux a little bit. Anyway, so this was written allegedly around 1200 B.C. Probably, my guess is on my reworking of chronology, it may have been actually much later after Solomon for sure. Uh, Dyer and Merrill go on to say the two works have a number of common themes and expressions and that they do. And also, a minimope consists of 30 chapters, like Proverbs, and Proverbs 22.20 says, Have I not written 30 sayings for you? So there's these kind of superficial similarities. They go on to say that the book of Proverbs may have borrowed and adapted some of these sayings in a, a minimope. Now, that's the problem, is they ought to presuppositionally say, No, that's not the way it happened, and then argue from there. Now, in, in answer to their view, they just give a little bit too much ground to the other side. Gleason Archer, who was the head of the Old Testament department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for many years, and he does, he's not one who was not without his flaws theologically at times. One time he was having a conversation at lunch with Pastor Theme, and he commented that he observes the Sabbath. I think Pastor Theme said, well, how exactly do you observe the Sabbath? And he said, well, I don't watch football on Sunday afternoon. (laughs) But Gleason Archer knew about 30 different languages and was one of the foremost Old Testament scholars uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. And he pointed out four things about this. So first of all, uh, Aminamope's Egyptian text has a large proportion of Semitisms. A Semitism is a saying that um, reflects uh, the, the way Hebrew narrative or Hebrew writing would have been done. For example, I've pointed this out in the past when we've studied through John or the Gospel of John or Revelation because the author, the, uh, the Apostle John, was Hebrew. He often writes narrative the way Hebrew is written, and this happened, and then this, and then this, and then this. And even though he writes in Greek, he writes in the style that reflects a, a Hebrew way of writing. So that's a Semitism. So a minim, uh, Archer observes that the Egyptian text has a lot of Semitisms in it, which reflects that it's, it is borrowing from a Hebrew original, not the other way around. Secondly, he points out that a large number of unknown or garbled Egyptian Egyptian words uh, can only be explained if they were first borrowed from a previous Hebrew text. If it were the other way around, then you, you can't explain where those unknown words or garbled words came from. Third, he points out that there are numerous cases where the Egyptian translator misunderstood the corresponding Hebrew word. He's really, his assumption, and I think is the correct one, that the writer of this Egyptian text borrowed from Solomon or from a Hebrew original later recorded by Solomon. And when they translated, they didn't understand the Hebrew word, so they put in, they made a guess, and it really doesn't make sense. And so when you try to reconstruct the original, it, you can reconstruct and clarify the Egyptian text only if you have a Hebrew original to go back to to give you clarification, and then that straightens out the Egyptian text. But if you go the other way around, there's no way to clarify the, uh, 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 the Egyptian text if that's the original one. And then the Hebrew text does, uh, of a similar proverbial saying doesn't make sense because the uh, Egyptian text is is different, and so uh, the the Egyptian can be explained better if you pre, if if a Hebrew text is first. If the Hebrew text is second, 
It just leads to confusion. And then he points out that, uh, that in actuality, in terms of similarity, only a third of the material between Proverbs 22 to 24, not the whole 31 chapters of Proverbs, but only a third of the material in Proverbs 22 to 24 shows any similarity at all to the text of a minimope. So having said that, what this clarifies for us is that constantly pagans and, and those who are hostile to the truth are are shooting down Scripture, and it sounds so academic and erudite, but when you really get down to men like Archer and many others within the conservative evangelical camp who can read all the languages, uh, they, uh, they go and investigate this and discover they're, they're making mountains out of molehills, and there's really no evidence. But this is the kind of stuff that some Western Civ freshman professor will throw out to confuse all the evangelicals in his classroom. This is a typical approach today. Uh, many professors at secular schools make it a point in the first year to destroy the evangelical faith of their students within the first four weeks of school. And I've heard story after story after story from young people who have gone to major universities and told uh, horror stories about how they were ridiculed in class within the first 15 minutes. The professor will figure out who the Christians are and then personally and directly attack them and insult and ridicule them uh, because of their beliefs, whether they're in sociology classes or feminist uh, women's studies classes or things of this nature. Archer's conclusion is that the Egyptian text is drawn, uh, drew most of its material from actually a prior Hebrew text. The Bible is always first. So we see that Solomon wrote down much of this material. It didn't necessarily originate with him, although God gave him a special gift of wisdom, and he wrote over 3,000 uh, proverbs. Uh, many of much of that wisdom was already existed in Hebrew poetry. Pointed out that Proverbs is didactic poetry, which means it teaches principles about how to live life. It's instructional. It's uh, based on a poetry form that rhymes ideas, not words. And so the key to understanding this is parallelism. Just to remind you of the three that we looked at last time, synonymous parallelism is where the second line reinforces or restates what's in the first line so you get it from a slightly different perspective and, uh, and, and we're able to understand the main idea a little more clearly. Uh, verses like the one we'll study this evening to, uh, or this morning to know wisdom and instruction then is parallel to the second line to perceive the words of understanding. The words are the message of discernment, really. That's how that should be translated, is parallel and expands a little bit on the first uh, the first statement. You have a synthetic parallelism where the second line adds to or completes the idea of the first line. And then we have the antithetic parallelism, which we see in uh, Proverbs uh, 1.7 at the conclusion of our passage this morning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and then the opposite, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the writer uses antithesis, stating the positive and then the opposite in order to get his point across and to emphasize what he is what he is teaching. I also pointed out that Proverbs is a tremendous book for teaching us how to solve problems. And most of us have problems solving problems. 
First of all, we don't want to admit that they're even there, so we ignore the problem and hope that it'll go away. Uh, that is often what I see in, in any kind of counseling I do is people who just, they've just avoided or ignored something for so long and now they have a major mess. Second, they can't ignore it any longer, so now they have to address it, but they only want to address it in a minimal way because they really don't want to get all that nasty, dirty laundry out in the open and actually have to think about it and, and be confronted with that. Uh, third way is they do try with some degree of honesty to face it, but it's just so overwhelming, sometimes embarrassing, sometimes they just feel helpless that they just give up. And then the person who's really interested in pursuing spiritual maturity and skillful living is going to honestly face the problem and then address it with the Word of God. So let's expand and develop our uh, these first seven verses a little more. The first verse is, of course, just the title, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then we have a series of of a purpose clauses to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. And then verse 5 totally breaks that pattern. We've had five purpose clauses and then just a statement, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. And then we come to verse 6, which returns to the, to the formula expressing the purpose clauses to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now you can see what I'm, the principle I'm about to state even by looking at the English grammar because it is a, an accurate reflection of the Hebrew grammar. You have five uh, infinitives in the English. These are infinitives of purpose to reflect the purpose structure of the, of the Hebrew. And then you have a declarative statement in verse 5, and then you return to your purpose clause. Well, usually a purpose clause in, in Hebrew and in English follows your main verb. I want you to go to the store in order to pick up this list of groceries. The purpose follows the verb. It's rare to start with the purpose, and then you don't get the main verb for three verses. But that's exactly how this begins. There are those who think that uh, it would make sense if you sort of supplied a verb. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, are for the purpose of knowing wisdom. See, you have to add something to that. But the way this is structured in the Hebrew, and it's not something that doesn't happen in Hebrew, but it's rare, but it's designed to structure it this way to really grab our attention. Remember, they don't have all the fonts we have with bold and italics and underlining, so they had to make emphases by the way they structured the grammar. And by throwing these first five purpose clauses ahead of your main main sentence was to grab a person's attention to focus on the purpose, not on the verbs per se, but on the purpose of this. And the main clause is is really what we find in verse 5. A wise man will hear and increase learning. 
A man of understanding will attain wise counsel in order to know wisdom and instruction, in order to perceive the words of understanding. See how that flows? So, so the main thought comes in verse 5, talking about a wise person. And the question for us is that even though this is stating it as a, as a declaration of reality, there is an embedded challenge there, and that is, do you want to be wise or do you want to be a fool? And that's what we'll find all the way through Proverbs is this contrast between the wise and the fool. And as we get into the development of the last part of uh, chapter 1 and on into chapter 2, we find that there is a contrast between uh, two different ways, and we'll find that there's one word usually translated way and another word translated uh, paths, and we have this this idea that comes through again and again. For example, in, he, in uh, Proverbs 2, 7 and 8, we read, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Where do you walk? You walk on a path. You walk down a way. So there's a contrast embedded there between which way, which path are you going to walk on. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. So justice and the way of his saints is on one path. It says, then you will understand, in verse 9, Proverbs 2, 9, then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. So the question that's embedded throughout Proverbs is, what path are you on? What way are you following? You have two options. Now, the modern, modern thinking is, well, that's just this black and white mentality of the Bible. Uh, and that's just antiquated. In fact, I heard uh, of someone just this last week who said, you know, the Bible is so out of date, we need to rewrite it and update it. It's, it's against homosexuals, and it's against this and against that. We just need to update the Bible. It's just completely out of date. See, that's modern man. And we laugh at that, be- and we're sort of shocked because somebody actually came out and said that. But they've been saying that behind academic college doors for for years, and now we're getting celebrities and newscasters saying this, and it's not going to be long before a lot of people join the chorus. And those who believe in the Bible are just uh, going to be even more uh, primitive and, and antediluvian and out of date. Uh, back when I was young, if you said, you know, the Bible says X, people paid attention now nobody cares. The Bible is irrelevant, not because the Bible's become irrelevant, but that people have become irrelevant to God, and they're on their own path and following their, their own way. They don't want to have anything to do with, with God. So the, the focus of the introduction is to grab our attention as we begin a study of this, of this book and asking the question of us, do we want to be wise? Do we want to have a skillful life? Do you want to live well? When it's all over with and you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, do you want to look back on a life that has been lived well, that has been lived skillfully? Now, it takes time to develop skill in any in any endeavor, but especially in the realm of uh, of life. So we're, we get this statement, a wise man will hear and increase learning. Now, in, in Hebrew, 
in both the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament in James, which, of course, was written in Greek, but it has a strong background in, in Jewish thought because James was, was the brother of our Lord. He's raised in a Hebrew, Jewish environment. And if you read through the book of James, he borrows a lot of ideas from the Old Testament. In fact, there are those who claim that James is sort of the New Testament counterpart to the book of Proverbs. In some ways that's true, but in the way they usually mean that, it's not true. They usually mean that because they think that just as Proverbs is a whole collection of unrelated uh, principles, uh, James is that way. But James, as I pointed out in my study of James, is an integrated whole around the idea that we need to learn how to be um, uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, and uh, quick to hear. And hearing is important because in Hebrew, it's not just academic learning or getting your your uh, auditory nerves stimulated. It is hearing in order to accomplish what you've heard, in order to put into practice what you have learned. And so that's the idea throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew word for hearing is to listen and do. It's not just just listening for listening's sake. So a wise man will hear and increase learning because he will increase and improve his application. Uh, the man of understanding, see how you, you have a synonymous parallelism here, the wise man is parallel to a man of understanding. Now, wisdom, as I've pointed out, is a word that emphasizes skillful application. What precedes skillful application is understanding. If we put it on a flow chart, which I'll do in, uh, as we develop this, is first you have to learn something. Then as you learn it and get the facts and practice it, you develop what we call discernment, which is every time you read the word understanding, think of it as, as, um, as discernment. Discernment is the ability to make a wise choice between things. Now, the Hebrew word for understanding is being, and I remember learning basic Hebrew vocabulary and try to develop little mnemonics to remember words. Uh, Being is making a decision between, being in between. And so being is that idea of not just understanding something but discerning what the issues are so you can make a wise choice between two options. So it's a very practical uh, concept. This is what we see in the first uh, or the second verse, to know wisdom, that is skill. That's the ultimate goal. That's why it's stated first. Wisdom and instruction. To get there, we have to have uh, musar, which I talked about last time. It's a disciplined, rigorous education involving correction and rebuke. So we are to know wisdom and uh, a rigorous, disciplined un- uh, instruction in order to perceive the words, the message of understanding that is very practical to be able to make wise decisions in the midst of what may appear to be a complicated life. So in terms of the idea of musar and correction, I point, uh, just a couple of verses I wanted to point out. Uh, number uh, This first one, Deuteronomy 11.2, Know today that I do not speak with your children, who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord our God. There's that word, musar, the chastening. It is not just instruction, as I'm instructing you, but it includes punishment. 
uh, a punishment idea to help conform the individual to obedience. Uh, we see this same word chastening in the upper to upper verse, Isaiah 53, that the Messiah was to be the chastisement for our peace. It includes that idea of punishment or discipline. Uh, Jeremiah 20, uh, 2.30, and God says, In vain I have chastened your children, the divine discipline upon upon Israel. It's including verses like Jeremiah 5.3, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. The wise person receives correction, responds positively to the discipline, and is is straightened out. Um, they have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to, to return. See, the issue is that often uh, when we're disobedient, if we don't respond to the instruction of the word, then God's going to uh, bring out the uh, belt, as it were. That's what I had to face at times from my father. And uh, he would uh, take me and, and uh, give me a spanking with a belt. That was the last resort. I, that, that was when I was particularly obnoxious. Um, but if, if you didn't respond to that, then things got really bad. So I hoped I was always responsive. Jeremiah 7.28 says, So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. The end result of that is just a, a, just a boatload of misery and a self-induced calamity in life. This is the same word that we find in Proverbs 3.11 and 12, which is quoted in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 6. And following my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. If you're not being corrected, then maybe you're an illegitimate child. And that's the implication. Because if you're a true child of God, God is going to discipline you. Also, as you go through the law... In the Old Testament, the principle behind it in Deuteronomy 4, 6 was be careful to observe them, that is the law, Torah, the instruction of the law, for this is your wisdom and your understanding. It is the word of God that is the source for wisdom and understanding, that is discernment, because that is what gives that ability to think clearly and objectively in issues. The Bible doesn't tell you how to make every decision in life. It's going to give us the framework so that as we face decisions, whether you're in a, an Asian culture, European culture, African culture, Latin culture, whatever the culture is, you can take the principles of the instruction of the word and then apply them in a skillful way that leads to uh, discernment, and to wisdom, to skillful living. So as we look at the text, the third verse says that we're to receive the instruction, that is the Torah, of, of wisdom, uh, how to live skillfully. And this results in three things, justice, judgment, and equity. Justice, judgment, and equity. Now, the first word, justice, is a word that is familiar to many of us. It's the Hebrew word, tzedek, and this has to do with doing things according to an objective standard of right and wrong, an objective standard related to the objective revelation of God, that which conforms to righteousness. 
So the result of receiving the instruction, the Torah, the, uh, the teaching of wisdom is that we develop justice or righteousness. And then judgment is mishpat, which is the application of the objective principle of right and wrong to situations in life. And then the last word, uh, equity, the last word equity is a word that is designed to give um, uh, objective standards to everyone so they're treated the same way uh, under this objective uh, standard. It has the idea sometimes it's translated upright, uh, but and sometimes it's translated fair, which is always to me a somewhat uh, pusillanimous, uh, ambiguous word. It has the idea of equal treatment before an objective standard of right and wrong. It has the idea of integrity. So as we receive uh, the instruction, uh, the, the, the disciplined instruction of wisdom, uh, justice, judgment, and integrity, it builds character based upon an absolute objective standard of right and wrong. Integrity isn't something that just happens. You have to first have this uh, understanding of right and wrong and its application, and then when that is applied to the individual, that develops a character of, of integrity. The fourth verse, it gives, this is an interesting verse, it gives prudence to the simple, how the New King James translates it, prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. Uh, some have trans, some translations translate the simple as the naive. Uh, that's not quite right either. It's the Hebrew word patach, which means something that is open. You might have an open door. It's patach. And it, it means not, it's a little more than just being naive or simply inexperienced, although that's, uh, that's possible. It also has the idea of just being open-minded. And some people can be so open-minded that they just suck in all of the bad ideas of human viewpoint and they're no good to anybody and it destroys their life. And you often hear people say that today, well, you need to be more open-minded. And what they mean is you need to just open your mind to all of the garbage of the world and then you'll, uh, you'll be like everybody else. You're just out of step because you're following the objective standards of the Word of God. And so the Bible treats the open-minded person as the one who is simple, like a simpleton. It's, it's not a positive thing. Or the person who is naive. They just don't have a grasp of reality because at the core of reality is the uh, uh, issue of sin. So verse 4 says it's to give uh, <clears throat> prudence or skill to the simple and to the young man knowledge and discretion. So this is how we come to understand truth and make good decisions. And then verse 5, of course, I've already addressed. This is the main thought, is to be a wise person. A wise person listens in order to learn, listens in order to learn and to apply the word in, in their life. That becomes a priority. And as such, they come to understand reality as it is and to attain um, wisdom wisdom and skill at living. Verse 6 tells us that uh, another, a sixth purpose, which is to understand a proverb and an enigma, 
to understand a proverb is what we're studying in the book, to really come to grips with these proverbs. Now, frequently we'll tell people, and I'm not correcting this at all, that you should read through the Proverbs. Try to read a chapter a day or half a chapter a day. Read several of them and think about them. If you read, just skim through a chapter a day or read quickly, that's a lot of material and a lot of different advice. But And we go too fast. A proverb is designed to be meditated upon, to stop and really think about it. And all that is that, that comprises it, because it's a distillation of a lot of things into a short, pithy, memorable statement. And so uh, the purpose is to understand a proverb. It takes time to think it through, to understand the comparisons, to understand the nuances and the words. And it sometimes seems to be a little bit puzzling. There are some that we will, uh, we will read where... Uh, where it seems a little bit contradictory or it seems a little bit superficial, and we just haven't spent enough time thinking about and probing its meaning. Uh, even though it seems a little enigmatic, once we spend some time with it, it won't be. And so it takes time to, we have to learn a lot to probe these things. And then we come to the last verse, verse 7, which gives us the foundational principle for uh, all of the um, all of the proverbs, and that is related to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is positive. This is not just reverence or respect. It's the idea that that I experienced as a child that if I had been sassy or had been in a bad mood and had uh, not shown proper uh, respect for my mother or had done something worthy of discipline, if it was really bad, then the message was, well, just wait till your father gets home and he'll take care of you. And it was like, okay, I'm going to my room and repent in sackcloth and ashes because my life will be worthless once he gets home. It is more than respect. It, it, there is a sense of fear of the consequences of wrong action because the Lord can't be fooled. The Lord knows everything, and we need to treat him with ultimate respect, and that's the starting point of knowledge. And that's the idea here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, in this verse, it uses a word, uh, that is uh, similar to the first word in Genesis 1, uh, in the beginning. And it is the, the basic noun there, and it has that idea of priority in time. Now, there are other places in the Scriptures that use a different Hebrew word which indicates priority in terms of, of its role within uh, the learning process. But here it's a priority of time that before we can really learn, we have to submit to the authority of God. It's humility it is that we have to recognize we don't know it, God does, and we need to listen and learn and submit to his authority. And if you come to the scriptures with an attitude of arrogance, 
that you already know it all, that you've got life by the handle and that you don't really need to learn all of this and to be in church every Sunday or go to Bible class during the week because you've got life under control. That is arrogance, and you're on the way, as Proverbs teaches, to your own fall and collapse. That if you really want to learn and be successful in living, not in business, not in academics, but in the process of living well, then it has to start with... uh, humility, submission to the authority of God. And if you don't, the Bible says you're a fool because what makes you a fool is that you despise the wisdom and the instruction of God. Now, you may not say you despise the instruction and wisdom of God, but if you're not making the study of God's Word a priority in your life, if you're not focused on that at least seven or eight hours a week, then by your actions you're despising the instruction of the Lord, because you're not giving it a high enough priority. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The one who despises wisdom instruction and instruction by their actions is what the Bible calls a fool. And we'll see that contrast all the way through the book of Proverbs. So the question is, do you want to live life skillfully and be wise, or do you want to be a fool and make a lot of mistakes and introduce a lot of misery just because you make bad decisions into your own life. The choice is yours. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that that wisdom is, is based upon humility and is learning to live in conformity with the way you have created things so that we may excel in how we live, the way we live, and that when it is done, we can say that we have lived well. That no matter what we might face in life, we know that that uh, we can still have happiness and joy because of your grace. Father, we're above all things thankful that we have salvation because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Sin is the basic problem that we face. Sin is the thing that keeps us from uh, humility. It is arrogance. Sin is... Uh, self-absorption. It is focusing on our plan and not your plan. We have all sinned, the scripture says, and fallen short of your glory, And that you, but you have provided a solution for us. You are the one who has given us an eternal redemption because you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and to pay the penalty for sin, which the scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And, Father, we pray that as we uh, conclude our meeting this morning that if there's anyone here that's never trusted in Christ as Savior, maybe they're unsure or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sin so that there's nothing for you to do other than trust in him. And at the instant you do, God gives you eternal life, which can never be taken away from you. Father, we pray that as we close out today that we would all be mindful of the fact that that the only way to begin to live wisely is to, first of all, trust in Christ as Savior, to show our fear of you in that area, and then to make you, uh, the knowledge of your word, a priority from that point on. May this be the challenge that we're ready to accept from the teaching of your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.